Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Look for us on iTunes to subscribe. I'm Rick Newman. If you feel overwhelmed by technology sometimes or all the time, you belong to a large and growing club. So I'm joined now by two prominent chroniclers of the digital age, Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson, both of MIT, who have a new book out called Machine Platform Crowd, Harnessing Our Digital Future. And with luck, they'll help us understand how humans are going to remain relevant as machines begin to dominate work and life. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having Pleasure. us. Uh, interesting new book. You've written a lot about this before. Could you start by telling us where are we exactly in this uh, relentless technological march? And what is the next thing coming that people are going to start to see happening? We are just at the early stages of what we consider an inflection point in technology. It, it's been improving exponentially for some time, but now the layers are getting higher and higher where it's having some big impacts on business and on organization. Companies aren't keeping up with that, and that's why we wrote the book. Okay. Eric and I think that... That was, that was Eric, Andrew talking. And this yeah. is Andy. Uh, Eric and I think that about once a century, a huge technology surge comes along. Two centuries ago, it was the steam engine. One century ago, it was the internal combustion engine and electric power. Now, we wrote this book because there are three things going on. There's this amazing surge in artificial intelligence and machine learning. That discipline is finally keeping the promises it's been making for half a century. We are interconnecting the majority of human beings for the first time, so there's this huge online crowd. And we're seeing the rise of these weird, very powerful new businesses that we call platforms that put a digital layer over the physical world, connect all of us with different things, and realize a lot of value that way. Those are three important things all going on at once. Eric and I think that all three of these revolutions are in their early stages. So the consumer Internet has been here since around 1994-95, more than 20 years. And a lot of people think we're already deeply into the digital revolution. Are you guys kind of saying, no, we're only just getting started? We're only just getting started. And part of it is the consumer Internet. But a, a, a good example is um, e-commerce and retailing. People w talked about how amazing that was back in the 1990s. But it's just now that we're really seeing bricks and mortar retailers feeling the heat from that. But these other revolutions, like the machine learning revolution, is just getting underway. The platform revolution is just getting underway. So we have more and more waves of change that are in the pipeline. And the next 10 years are going to make the last 10 years seem like nothing. Wow. But you bring up a good point. We've had computers for over half a century. We've spent 20 years in the Internet era, 30 years in the PC era. Okay, what is actually new now? And the way Eric and I think about it is all of that was part one of the second machine age where we built technologies that could handle the incredibly routine stuff. Can you take an order and ship an order to a mm -hmm. customer via the web? That was important. But it was kind of low level in some ways. What's happening now is things are actually getting crazy. And the fact that we have the planet's best player of this ancient Asian strategy game of Go being a piece of technology for the first time, that's weird. We were not expecting that. And it's an incredible feat of technological achievement. So help organize history for me a little bit here. The first machine age was basically the Industrial Revolution. That's right. When machines started uh, automating and augmenting our muscles, you know, okay. taking over from physical work. Okay, people get that. That's intuitive at this point. The second machine age was computers? Taking over our mental work. Okay. And the first phase, like we just said, was taking over routine calculations. A lot of people don't know that computer was originally a job description for a human being. They mm. sat around and did arithmetic. Somebody who computes. It was a job category. Yeah. yeah. They would okay. sit around and do arithmetic and tabulate right. things. Okay, we handed that off to technology 
over the previous decades. Now what we're doing, which is where things we believe get really exciting, is we're able to build machines that can do more abstract, more higher level, more kind of esoteric reasoning, and really important, we don't need to teach the machines exactly how to do that reasoning. Mm -hmm. They can figure things out on their own. That's where this phrase machine learning right. comes from. Okay, so would you say that we are just now kind of at the end of the second machine age and oh. all this technology, the internet and everything associated with, with it was really just the second machine age. We're leaving that era yeah. and about to enter a third? No, no, that's not the way to think about it. Each of these eras takes about a century to fully play out. So we're still in the early stages of the second machine age, but we are having what we call the second wave. The first wave is when, as Andy was saying, we taught machines what to do. We would tell them how to code. You know, mm -hmm. this is exactly how you do taxes or whatever. The, the, this new second wave is fundamentally different. Machines are learning on their own how to solve problems, how to recognize faces, how to play the game of Go, how to recognize good or bad credit risks. And that's something that is really different because they figure out what the algorithms are that are needed rather than us having to know them in advance. So this is, this, we're talking about artificial intelligence here. This is one of those phrases, mm -hmm. I have no doubt, a lot of people hear this and they're just like, uh, I just hope I can get to retirement before this makes everybody obsolete. So can you make this concrete for people a little bit? What is artificial intelligence going to change about the way we live and the way we work? So for example, uh, Eric and I believe that very quickly we're gonna have medical diagnosis increasingly done by machines. Medical diagnosis is really important to do correctly. It's incredibly difficult. Doctor, human doctors get trained for a long time. They're typically very smart, deeply educated, and they train for years and years to be able to detect disease or know what, what stage cancer this is. We have machines now, like Eric, Eric was saying, that can figure out those things for their own. And we believe that, for example, the work of medical diagnosis is gonna move a lot more to machines. That doesn't mean that we're gonna have no human doctors anymore, that there's no room for people in this process, but we think a lot of activities are gonna skew much more heavily toward being done by machines. So this, is, so this implies better, better medical outcomes. Absolutely right. And for example, there are about 30,000 or, 30, or more road fatalities per year in the United States. We're going to have autonomous driving, and autonomous driving is going to be safer, going to reduce that number. Right. So you bring up a really important point. The, the first thing to keep in mind is that all of this tech progress is making our world better, improving the quality of our lives, our health, reducing our accident risk, and making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the role of the human in all of this. I mean, one of the th points you made in your, uh, in your book is that I think you say most decisions are just better made by algorithms because of the biases human beings bring to the decision-making process, uh, other things like that. What, I mean, a lot of people are very worried about being replaced by robots and software. So what is the right way to think of the human role in everything you're describing? There's still no shortage of work that only humans can do well, but there are things that machines can do better and better. Now, this isn't the first time it happened. Uh, Andy was just talking about computers and how they can calculate better than us. I don't feel threatened that a calculator can do arithmetic faster than me. And when it comes to recognizing cancer in a medical image, soon machines will be able to do that better. But humans still have a strength in a couple of big, very important categories. One of them is interpersonal skills, uh, emotional intelligence, coaching, persuading, caring, selling. relating to people, selling, selling absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. negotiating. And most of us would want to deal with another human for those kinds of tasks. And I think that's going to be a big growth area going forward. And maybe that'll be augmented by machines will help with parts of the analytical part, but mm -hmm. the humans will still do that relationship part. The other huge category is in truly creative work, you know, entrepreneurship, scientific discovery, writing novels. 
And in those categories, I think there's probably no better time in history to be a person with those kinds of skills because the machines can help leverage it. The platforms can help you reach millions or billions of people. And so looking forward, there's a really wrenching transition going on as some of those old categories get automated and people have to uh, build the skills for those two new big categories. And, and your question gets to one of the most wrenching aspects of this transition. All of us, Eric and I included, walk around with great faith in our judgment, our intuition, our decision-making ability. The evidence is really overwhelming that even though our brains are awesome, they are buggy, they are glitchy, they have these biases built in, and we actually make fairly lousy decisions in a lot of ways. Uh, when we were writing the book, we came across this amazing study that showed that uh, if you are a prisoner coming up for parole, the single best indicator of whether or not you're going to get parole is the blood sugar level of the parole judge at the time that they hear your case. Right. Okay, that's a really bad way to make that. That's, <laughs> that's really scary. That's deeply, that's deeply totally flawed. totally random. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, and so, right. So if you saw the guy at 1030, uh, you're going to go back into prison. That's, that's a terrible yeah. way to make that decision. So the point that Eric and I make is not that human beings are now worthless, but that we had better be aware of these glitches and these biases and these limitations and use computers which make errors but make different kinds of errors than we humans mm -hmm. do put those minds and machines together to wind up with better medical diagnoses, better decisions about parole, a better forecast about how well something is going to sell, we can do a lot better in these areas. So let me get you guys to talk about what ordinary people ought to be doing about everything you guys see coming. So in the book, you, you, you argue that uh, technology does not displace humans. Technology is a tool that humans can use as they wish. Um, I think people understand that, but I mm -hmm. think a lot of people also think that the technology available today is a tool um, mainly used by hyper-educated elites in Silicon Valley and a few other places like that. And th this is almost a tool that's just not available to ordinary people. So how do ordinary people harness this power in a way that might give them job security, enhance their living standards, and improve their lives instead of just making them fear fearful of becoming obsolescent all the time? There are a couple of basic strategies. They go back to those categories where we see job growth. One is, well, the broad strategy is to develop skills that machines aren't good at. And so those are those two things we mentioned earlier, uh, the emotional intelligence and the creativity. And those are things that I think we can excel in more. People can learn to develop those skills. Uh, our schools right now crush them in many cases. But there are more and more business models evolving where people are using machines to help connect other people to each other for exactly those kinds of coaching applications or to leverage their creativity. And if people develop those skills more effectively, then I think entrepreneurs will be able to tap into them increasingly. Okay. When technology changes, this profound happen. Everyone else, ha everything else has to change as well. So Eric and I have written about our, how our policies need to change, how companies need to change. It's also incumbent on people to look at their skills, to try to improve them, and to get ready for this world that's coming. Complacency or wishing for yesterday and nostalgia are really bad personal strategies in this world. Like Eric just said, though, you don't need to try to become a super genius to be valuable in this world that we're creating. Interpersonal skills are still really valuable, and all of us can easily think of interactions that we've had with people that were really fantastic, and we thought they did a great job, even if what they were doing was not an incredibly elite, highly educated job. Yeah. Uh, people are really, really good at those kinds of interpersonal interactions. We can also think of other people doing that same job 
who are terrible at it, who are just kind of mumbling a script or going through the motions. That's a really bad strategy going forward. Uh, we've, we heard Donald Trump get elected last year on this, you know, everybody knows his slogan, Make America Great Again. To some extent, that implies uh, let's find a way to bring back some of the jobs of the past. He has sort of invited coal miners to the White House. Uh, sort of this emphasis on industrial era jobs. What advice would you give somebody in a policy making position such as the president about how to how to prepare people for what's coming? Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Large numbers of coal mining jobs are not coming back to America for all kinds of reasons. Any more, coal mining jobs. Any coal mining, right. More broadly, uh, we are never again going to have a large, stable, prosperous middle class in this country doing routine industrial era work. Now, that's a, that's a difficult conclusion to accept. But the, the assembly line jobs and payroll clerk jobs in the 1970s, those jobs are gone. So what, are, are what are people back. who have kind of um, grown up in that sort of community and that is their, what should they do? Well, the key lesson is you have to embrace the future and not try to go backwards to the past. America has never been successful by trying to freeze in place the old way of doing things. It's always been successful, like all dynamic economies, by embracing the future. And that means that people have to constantly hustle and learn new skills more now than in the past. But it's, yeah. it's almost cruel to tell people you can go back and preserve the old way of doing things. It's very uncomfortable, but ultimately, if you embrace these new approaches by having uh, more investment in education, especially to boost creativity mm -hmm. and emotional intelligence, and you develop some of the new business models that are replacing the old ones, it's going to create not just a bigger pie, but also one with rising living standards for almost everybody, yeah. and, a shared and the, prosperity. And the two of us are aware there are lots of communities in this country that are hurting, and, and to pretend otherwise is just silly. Right. Uh, however, those communities are not hopeless, and we think it's way too early to give up on this American spirit of uh, you know, tenacity and, and innovation and entrepreneurship and dynamism that define this country. Now, some of those things are heading in the wrong direction. We've got to figure out why and turn that around. But to suddenly just get all nostalgic and try to go back as quickly to the 1950s as possible, I, like, I find that un-American. Last thing I want to ask you guys. Um, you say in the book that in the next 10 years, we will, the ordinary person will have 100 times the computing power available to them that's available today. Mm -hmm. That sounds great if you're Amazon running cloud services. What's your ordinary person going to do with that? How does that help uh, you know, somebody who's just streaming? And well, it's great it? for all of us. I mean, in, in our pockets right now, we have a supercomputer. And this supercomputer, we're not using it to crunch numbers to calculate you know, the orbit of Mars. We're using it to deliver a whole set of applications we never could have had before, from GPS to chat rooms to Yahoo. And by, able, by having those applications on the phone, we basically are getting a huge amount of value that for, for close to for free that we wouldn't have had access to 10 or 20 years ago. And going forward, we're going to have, as Andy was saying, uh, machine learning doctors in our pocket that can help make diagnoses. We're going to have uh, a whole set of other sets of applications that we can't even imagine yet, all leveraged by this computer power, not just in, on the phone, but in the cloud as well. This, yeah, this is exactly right. All of us are carrying around a supercomputer in our pockets now, and the way we use it, almost everybody, is not by logging on and accessing an actual supercomputer right. in the cloud. We're using these apps that do amazing things for us, help us navigate unfamiliar cities. We can talk into this phone now and dictate. We can get automatic translation on the fly. That's what we're doing with the co computing power of today. Now, you mentioned 100x that in the next decade. 
What well, I you guys wrote about it. What, one yeah. thing that I think is going yeah. to happen is we're not going to be pulling computers out of our pockets and trying to interact with them. Over the next decade, these, these devices are going to kind of fade into the background. And maybe it'll be via a pair of glasses. Maybe it'll be via something on our wrist. Maybe it'll be mm-hmm. something we haven't come up with yet. But the, the, the physical thing is going to kind of fade into the background. And our ability to do incredibly powerful things with technology is only going to increase. So harness your smartphone and whatever replaces what, it. Whatever the next version <laughs> yeah. of smartphone is, it's going to deliver astonishing capabilities, not just to the wealthy or to the tech elite. This is a mass market device. Now. And, and it's That's an opportunity for all of us to think about applications we can run on top of this, tapping into some of the machine learning techniques that are actually not that hard to learn and developing apps, developing other type, you know, whether it's, it's videos or other things, that you can reach a lot of people through this platform that is basically being given to us uh, almost for free. Fascinating stuff, guys. Thanks you, thank you for uh, joining us and explaining some of this. Thanks for having us our, on. Our pleasure. And thanks for tuning in to the Yahoo Finance podcast. Don't forget to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast to rate, review, and subscribe.